Support for Seeking a Scientist comes from the Linda Hall Library, presenting Chain to the Sky, the Science of Birds Past and Future. This free Linda Hall Library exhibition is open to the public through July 13, 2024. Learn more at lindahall.org. From the Sowers Institute for Medical Research and KCUR Studios in Kansas City, this is Seeking a Scientist, a podcast where science fiction meets reality. I'm Dr. Kate Bieberdorf, a.k.a. Kate the Chemist, and in this episode, we're seeking a scientist to help us tackle our planet's growing energy crisis. Uh, does it run like on, on regular unleaded gasoline? Unfortunately, no. It requires something with a little more kick. Plutonium! The energy grid has seen a lot of problems in recent years. How are we preparing for an uncertain future? Can renewables save the day? And is it really a question about generating energy or how it's used? Who controls it and how it's distributed? This is not really an issue of science. It's an issue of effectless management. That's a big part of the story, but that's also only one part of the story. We have a aging electricity infrastructure like a lot of places. There's been a breakthrough with a renewable energy source that could be the fix for all our electric blues. Nuclear power is, by the numbers, with evidence, the safest form of energy of all major sources of energy we have. In February 2021, Winter Storm Uri moved across North America and 9.9 million people in the United States and Mexico lost power. These blackouts were caused by a combination of a poorly managed electrical grid and a failure to winterize natural gas infrastructure and wind turbines in just one state, Texas. The cold increased demand on the grid and it simply couldn't keep up. The official death toll, according to the state of Texas, was 246 people, but BuzzFeed News found evidence of nearly triple that. In my hometown, Austin, the city issued a boil water notice after our water plant lost pressure. Since people didn't have power, they couldn't really do much. It was a legitimate humanitarian crisis here. And blackouts like these are becoming more and more common in Texas specifically. Why? You see, the United States has three major electrical grid systems, Western, Eastern, and Texas. When states in the Eastern or Western system have issues, like bad weather or when a line fails, they can just help each other out. But Texas stands alone as the sole independent energy grid in the United States. And snow, hail, and tornadoes all expose the vulnerabilities in its design. It's regulated by ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Irony, anyone? Just recently, I lost power to another ice storm. We couldn't charge our phones, watch TV, or use our laptops. Thankfully, my house is equipped with a gas stove, so I figured out our food situation. But it was cold and a pretty unsettling experience overall. But at this point, it's hardly a surprise. This has been going on for decades. In 2011, a Groundhog Day blizzard caused 75% of the state of Texas to experience rolling blackouts, leaving 19.2 million people without power for more than three days. I know, three days doesn't sound like a very long time, but imagine if you were caught off guard and you didn't have food in your house or didn't winterize your pipes. The roads were so bad that people couldn't leave to get help if they needed it. 
Energy economist Ed Hurst responded to this catastrophe by writing an article in the Houston Chronicle titled, Texas Suffers from Soviet-Style Electricity Distribution System. He and co-author economist Paul McAvoy compare the Texas grid failure to the 1975 Soviet crop failure. The original title of that piece was ERCOT, with the C replaced by hammer and sickle. But the, the editor of the Chronicle didn't think that was particularly appropriate. So real quick, let's talk about how grids work. We produce electricity by burning fossil fuels or using renewable energy like solar panels and wind turbines. Then electricity is sent across long distances using high voltage transmission lines. These lines then go to local facilities called substations where the power is stepped down, converting high voltage to a lower voltage. This is the power that you use at home and at work. So the Western and Eastern grids have capacity to store leftover energy, but... The way the grid was set up was with the electricity-only market, you're just feeding enough to some generators to keep it up. Think of it as the hog farmer not putting enough food out for his hogs. So when the weather puts pressure on the grid, the system could collapse because there's no backup plan in its design. That's why Ed likens it to the massive Soviet crop failure that occurred in the 1970s. The Soviets thought they had everything figured out. They were using a brilliant mathematical model that helped them distribute resources to the people. But when bad weather occurred and crops started to fail, nobody did anything to fix the system. They ran out of food because, in Ed's words, they couldn't control the weather. Well, Ed predicted that the exact same thing was going to happen to Texas energy. The grid would crash because we cannot control the weather. No one seemed to have much of a sense of humor when we published that. And, and then the follow-up pieces, they were all met with uh, derision and op-eds written by lobbyists and business columnists across the state. But that's exactly what happened. He was right. You know, here we are, and um, yeah, it, it, it's yeah, there's no comfort with us at all. Uh, and, and Kate, no one pays you to be right. You can hear the frustration in his voice, especially because critics say Texas had a chance to right the wrong. They could mandate that utility companies winterize their facilities, but Ed says they had no financial incentive to do so. If somebody said, you know, Kate and Ed, please put insulation around your power plant and, and you and I would look at it and go, why? Because you're not going to pay me to do this. In fact, they make more money when the demand is up and the supply is down. Under your rules, the price is going to jump to $9,000 a megawatt hour and the eight plants that we have operating are going to clean up. On top of losing their power, citizens are dealt with crippling energy bills. Texas has had very poor management. This is, this is not really an issue of science. It's an issue of feckless management by the, the guys who've been in the legislature as well. This has all been out in the open for anyone who, who wanted to pay attention. Remember, we're not really talking about milk spoiling in the fridge or a few cold nights in jackets and blankets. The real issue for concern are hospitals, care facilities, and homes with sick people who depend on life-saving medical equipment that's physically plugged into the wall. People's lives are literally connected to energy. But former Texas Governor Rick Perry suggested that Texans should be willing to go days without power to keep federal regulators out of the state's power grid. You know, for crying out loud, Governor, you're not hooked up to a dialysis machine. 
When it comes to energy policy, Ed doesn't pull punches. So you guys, the future of energy in the United States will require turning away from fossil fuels like coal and oil. On top of the fact that they're already dwindling in supply, they're also destructive to the environment and damaging to our health. What we need to do is invest in wind and solar energy, two non-combustible renewables. Now, some studies suggest that natural gas, a fossil fuel, may still be useful as a backup for storms and extreme weather, but achieving that balance of energy sources is much easier said than done. Let's go back to 2006. Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet. Justin Timberlake just brought sexy back. George H.W. Bush was in his second term of U.S. presidency. And California made the unprecedented decision to run full speed ahead with a commitment to go green. They passed ambitious climate change legislation called the Global Warming Solutions Act. The goal was to have 20% of California's electricity produced by renewable resources by 2010 and up to 33% by 2020. By combining regulations, incentives, and asking people to do their parts, they thought they could reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The plan was to focus their efforts on motor vehicles, fuels, and electricity production. The Sunshine State created networks of wind turbines, retired three big natural gas plants, and pushed automakers to produce competitive zero-emission vehicles. They foresaw what we see now, a future of sustainable and renewable energy moving us away from the fossil fuels that harm us and the planet. There's no way to stop us now that clean, green energy can power our lives, right? Not so fast. These days, even with all the regulation, electric car production, and development of wind and solar energy, California finds itself suffering from rotating blackouts during peak electricity usage. Like, right after work, when everyone is trying to make dinner and watch TV. Or on hotter days, when we all come home and immediately turn on the AC. I can't fault California for being proactive and trying to do their part to protect the environment, but... Critics say this fast push for green energy has left many in the dark more often than they'd like, and with a grid that doesn't meet the demand of their consumers. So if going green isn't a cure-all, then what is? Ed calls the examples in Texas and California the canary in the coal mine, or early warning signs of danger when it comes to the future of electricity reliability in the United States. California had the first restructuring, if you will, in the 90s, uh, they also had the first grid failures in 2000, 2001. And Texas seems to just follow along blindly without thinking ahead about what needs to be done to really to get ahead of the problem. So you're saying California went too green too fast? Yes, there's been a lack of investment in the California grid for many, many years. The new CEO of California Independent System Operator, Elliot Mainzer, took office Labor Day of 2020. The first thing he did was he went out and bought five gigawatts of new natural gas fired generation. Then Major came up with a unique idea. He convinced the California legislature to pass a law that would help prop up natural gas plants. Scientists and environmentalists were not happy about this decision. He also hijacked some of Arizona's electricity that they had bought from 
uh, Washington and Oregon that was crossing his wires. So, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow of the California Western Interconnect is doing his best to fix the problems in California. Ed, I heard that in Texas we were four to five minutes away from a complete grid failure. Is that true? Yes. This would have been a disaster beyond anyone's imagination. Because as the CEO of the grid operator testified, it would have taken months to restore power across Texas. So 26 million people under the ERCOT grid, totally without power for weeks and months. Um, How many Berlin airlifts would that have taken to keep the state of Texas going? I don't think folks really appreciate the gravity of the situation or how serious this was. This is a serious national security vulnerability that has not had the impact in Austin or in Washington that it should. If you can just knock out a couple of nodes in the Texas grid and take it down for 26 million people, we don't have water. We don't have communications. Your cell phones don't work. You can't go too far other than the amount of gasoline you have in in your automobile. And good luck getting through the non-working stoplights. That isn't going to work, Dingus. Oh, really? It's not just in California and Texas either. Experts believe that New England and the Midwest are up next. It's an impossible situation across an incredibly large geographic area. Why don't I have a signal? nothing. It's disappointing that the state of Texas did not deal with this shortcoming in 2011 when they had the chance to and and address them directly. You know, keep in mind, we've had major grid failures across the United States, not on a regular basis, but frequently enough that everybody needs to be prepared. Uh, A tree limb fell in Cleveland some number of years ago and the entire Atlantic seaboard went down. And then, you know, not too long ago, some poor plant operator in, in Arizona pushed the wrong switch. He took down all of Arizona and Southern California. It makes you realize how this fragile resource can be taken for granted. Thankfully, in early April 2023, the Texas legislator voted to create emergency natural gas power plants that can be turned on during winter storms, which is something... But this will take years to fully implement, and we really need solutions and actions now. Let's see, how do we want to do this? So we're in the middle of an energy transition as we go away from carbon-intensive fuels. It's going to be a challenge. In order to get there, at least in terms of Texas and every other grid around the nation, we're going to have to build essentially a duplicate parallel generation infrastructure. And we're going to have to keep the fossil fuel plants for maybe five to 10 years because the battery technology is not there, not for more than, say, four hours peaking at a particular time. There are some very, very promising technologies for extended uh, storage of electricity. That's going to work. It's just going to take a while to get there. And so we're going to pay for this either in terms of -of out-of-pocket expenses on our bills or in terms of government subsidies. So it's going to come out of the taxpayer pocket or the consumer pocket. It's still going to come out of the same pair of pants. Or we're going to have to endure blackouts and volatile services. And that's really difficult because I I don't know about you, but everything we do is technology related. Your, Your smartphone, your smart device, 
if the power goes out, well, the cell towers go out and you're in a loss. And so I think society is going to have to make this recognition and agree to just pony up the cash now and get it done as uh, uh, efficiently as possible. The time for arguing is over. Okay, so this does not sound good. But there are scientists on the front lines developing promising solutions. Is the future nuclear? Support for Seeking a Scientist comes from Science City, powered by Burns & McDonald, inviting families to put down their screens and pick up the fun at this Kansas City hands-on love of learning destination while exploring the indoor and outdoor spaces. Tickets at ScienceCity.com. Seeking a Scientist is made possible with support from the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, where scientists work to accelerate our understanding of human health and disease. More information about the Stowers Institute is online at StowersInstitute.org. So whenever there's a blackout, a familiar story unfolds. Let's look at Texas again. During these these winter freezes in, in 2011 and 2021, everyone across Texas turned on their heaters. Everyone across Texas turned on their ovens, their stoves. They wanted to stay warm. And, and there wasn't enough generation capacity available to, to service the consumer demand. To deal with this, state agencies and ERCOT, the grid operator, had to cut off power to different parts of the state to preserve the integrity of the electrical grid but they'd rotate it so no one was put out for too long. It's a strategy called load shedding. So for example, maybe the city of Austin lost power for an hour and a half. Maybe the city of Dallas would lose power for 30 minutes here, 40 minutes there. Not enough to freeze you, but enough to, to you know, then have it restored and, and bring you back into the 21st century, if you will. Load shedding is actually a common solution to reduce stress on electrical grids. By temporarily reducing service at specific times, it prevents catastrophic grid failures and extended outages. But it doesn't impact everyone equally. Like, if you live on the same grid as a hospital or a water plant, you are less likely to lose power. And load shedding isn't only put into action in dire circumstances. In some countries, outside of the United States, this is the norm. Let me introduce you to Mike Rayfeldt. I am 47 years old and I'm a journalist living in Cape Town. I've been living in South Africa for more than 20 years now. For the last 16 years, load shedding has been a part of life for Mike and more than 59 million other South Africans. Load shedding is kind of a fancy way of talking about power cuts. I think the main difference is that Load shedding is scheduled. So here it says today, April 12th, we had power off uh, three times from midnight to 2.30 in the morning when I was sleeping, from 8 to 10.30 in the morning when I desperately wanted to make coffee, and from now, 4 p.m. to 6.30. Oh my gosh, it seems like it's bouncing around a lot. How do you know the schedule? We have an app that tells us uh, when the power is going to go off, but... That changes all the time as the strain on the power grid increases and decreases. So all of a sudden, at a moment's notice, we can be told that the power is going to go off in about 15 minutes. So load shedding is really something that defines all of our lives here in South Africa. 
The blackouts are caused by aging coal-fired power stations that the dysfunctional state electricity company, ESCOM, cannot seem to keep online. But fault also lies with the ruling party, the African National Congress, and corruption and mismanagement going back decades. I think there's a pretty complex mess of things that come together to create the conditions that we're in. A world where the power just goes out for hours at a time, any day of the week, every day of the week. Mike, how do you even get work done? I would say during my working day, it's pretty typical that there are four hours where I do not have power. So I have a backup inverter that keeps my Wi-Fi going, which is great. I have a backup battery, which theoretically charges my laptop, although it works uh, less and less well every day. I think all of us as South Africans were constantly thinking about when to charge our devices. So wait, how do you prepare for your week knowing there's not going to be electricity at certain times? Well, it's really hard to plan because the times that the electricity is going to go off changes from day to day and from week to week, and it can actually change at the last minute. Today, uh, I was not scheduled to have power off right now, which is at 4 p.m., and they alerted us that there was a strain on the grid about 45 minutes ago. So as much as you try to plan to do things when you have power, it's not always possible. So I always have some food that doesn't need cooking with electricity in the refrigerator and kind of ready to go because you just never know. So how does that even work with your energy bill? I mean, is it prorated for the times that you don't have power or what? I pay probably about a thousand rands, which is maybe about $70, 70 US dollars a month. I don't use a lot of electricity. It's still quite expensive if you think about the electricity cost per unit. Wait a minute. They charge you an electric bill, but they cut it off, but you still get the bill. Yes! Oh, that's crazy. No, no, but seriously. When I was talking to Mike, he said one thing that really surprised me. He says being without power for hours is definitely less than ideal, but he has found a bright side to it. Okay, not a lot of people are going to say this, but I do not mind so much having two hours where the power is off. So this morning I woke up and there was no power at eight o'clock in the morning and I went on a really nice long walk on the beach. So I think that the way to stay sane in load shedding is to maybe use that time to do some other things that kind of feed your soul in certain kinds of ways. And there may be ways in which I'm actually being a lot nicer to myself as a person and allowing myself to slow down, to take a little bit longer on some of those unrealistic deadlines and just to give myself a little bit of space and not using the power being off as an excuse, but actually not trying to cram in work that's really difficult to do when you don't have power. I should point out that Mike is aware that all people experience blackouts differently. He's got the luxury of working from home, which makes it easier, but others are not as fortunate. President Cyril Ramaphosa recently declared the South African energy crisis a state of disaster. But while Ramaphosa acknowledges that South Africa's national power grid is crumbling, the ruling African National Congress Party has done very little to prevent its impending collapse. 
Now, many are taking to the streets to protest. And even though Mike has found ways to get through the blackouts, it still takes a lot of planning to be comfortable without electricity. My biggest sort of load shedding trigger is the fact that I live on the seventh floor. And under normal circumstances, I would be taking the elevator up and down. But I live in constant fear of jumping into that elevator or friends visiting me or my kids or other people getting into that elevator and not realizing that it's time for the power to shut off and them getting stuck for two hours. That's happened many times in the building that I'm living in. Quite recently, there was a construction worker who's working in one of the flats and he jumped in the lift not knowing that the power was going to go off and boom, you know, power cut and he was stuck there for two hours and he had a bit of claustrophobia and he was, I was actually speaking to him from outside of the elevator and I said, look, you know, if you weren't in here, you would be working and kind of lifting these heavy things. I said, how about you just take a nap for two hours? Because you're going to be fine, you're safe, and in two hours those doors are going to open and you're going to be able to come out. And he did. Uh, I came back as the load shedding shut off and the doors opened and he was still sleeping and I actually had to wake him up. There are people in my building who have mobility issues, so there are six hours of the day on a normal day and this is not on a heavy load shedding day where it could be 12 hours, where they are not able to use the lift and are not able to use the stairs either. So they're functionally stuck in their apartments for those times. Is that my future here in Texas, where I'm going to be terrified to step into an elevator and risk being trapped in a small box with strangers for hours? Is that your future if you live in California, New England, or the Midwest? Maybe, or maybe not. Last year, some superhero nerds made a huge breakthrough that I did not see coming. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on guard. <laughs> no, not quite that. You're on the wrong planet. But we did take a large step forward with nuclear energy. I know, I know. People have concerns about nuclear energy, but here are the facts. One, it's really, really hard to turn nuclear fuel into a nuclear bomb. Two, if you live in the United States, you are already getting nearly 20% of your energy from nuclear power. And three, there has never been a nuclear meltdown. One pet peeve, the media usually gets wrong the risks of nuclear power. Nuclear power is, by the numbers, with evidence, the safest form of energy of all major sources of energy we have. That's Adam Stein, Director of Nuclear Energy Innovation at the Breakthrough Institute. It's safer than wind and solar because unfortunately there's accidents either installing or maintaining wind and solar. And definitely safer than fossil fuels. So let me pull back the curtain on this big discovery. In December of 2022, researchers from the National Ignition Facility located at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory used 192 lasers to fuse two specific hydrogen isotopes together, forming one helium atom. This process is called nuclear fusion, and this is not the same as nuclear fission, which we've been doing for years and is a power source for nuclear submarines, weaponry, and our power plants. Nuclear fission is when we bombard a large atom with neutrons, 
forcing it to split apart into smaller atoms. This process releases a lot of heat, which we can then convert into electricity, and we've been doing this with fission for decades. But fusion, the recent breakthrough, is different. If you think about fission as splitting atoms apart, you can think of fusion as putting atoms together. He says you should care about this freaking fascinating experiment because this is the first time we've ever done what is called fusion ignition, which is the chemical process that powers the sun. Our experiment is similar to the self-sustaining reaction on the sun that just perpetually generates heat over and over again. This is a really big breakthrough because these small atoms do not want to bond. It's kind of like forcing two magnets together. And the result of pushing these two isotopes together is that more energy is produced than what was used to perform the reaction. This was what's known as net gain, which means that the energy that went into the small experiment capsule, or target as it's known, what came out of that energy was a little bit more than went into that energy. Basically, a net energy gain, aka fusion ignition, is like if you were to put $5 into your bank account and then somehow $10 comes out. Now do you get what's so cool about this discovery? Because here, in fact, is the answer to a dream as old as man himself. A giant of limitless power at man's command. And where was it science found that giant? In the atom, a particle so infinitely small that it takes over a hundred billion billion atoms to make up the head of a pin. Actually, Adam would tell you, don't ditch your generator just yet. It's a step in the right direction. There are still several milestones to get to before it will ever be a power plant. So you don't seem to be convinced that this is the solution to solve the energy crisis. Why is that? And so there's a lot of what's known as waste energy that never even made it into the target in the first place to be part of the experiment. Basically, it took so much energy to even run the experiment that when it was all said and done, the energy produced during the experiment was a hundred times less than it took to power the lasers in the first place. On the sun, they don't have to turn on the lasers, but we do here on Earth. And in order for this to be truly energy efficient, we need to produce more energy during the experiment. All right, Adam, make a prediction for me. When are we going to have a nuclear fusion power plant? I would say sometime around 2045. 2045? Are you kidding me? That is assuming that some breakthroughs at very specific companies will be successful. There's a lot of commercial projects around fusion right now. Therefore, we have many more approaches than labs have been taking over the years. He says private companies can use the data from the breakthrough to spearhead their own projects to build new nuclear reactors. They will run on fusion instead of fission and will be a source of clean and green energy. But like Adam said, we're decades away from being able to benefit from it. I think of it as planting a sapling in your backyard. It's going to be a lot of work to raise that cute baby tree into something that may eventually provide you with fruit or energy. However, the time and money that you'd need to invest into the growth process is probably going to be worth it. Wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? No, 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 no. This sucker is electrical. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. <clears throat> 
It's gigawatts, Doc Brown. I know it'll be a while, but as a proud chemist, all I can think about is how revolutionary this new development is, and I believe with all my heart that this one successful experiment is going to change the way we generate our electricity forever. Then again, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to our energy crisis. We need a multifaceted approach of energy conservation, building and repairing infrastructure, investment in wind, solar, and renewable resources, and a little bit of nerd elbow grease. Just look at how far we've come in such a short period of time. Benjamin Franklin did his kite experiment less than 300 years ago. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb about 150 years ago. The first cell phone was invented only 50 years ago. We are making huge advances in the STEM world, and at this rate, just imagine what the next 25 years will bring. There may be quite a bit of trial and error, false starts and restarts, but eventually, when you get the right people in the right room... Oh, oh! Even in the darkest hour... We can usually find the light. Thanks for listening to Seeking a Scientist. If you liked it, please write a review or share it with a friend. It'll help us celebrate these badass scientists and get them that standing ovation they so deserve. Seeking a Scientist is a production of KCUR Studios in Kansas City, made possible with support from the Sowers Institute for Medical Research and design help from PRX. It's hosted by me, Dr. Kate Bieberdorf, a.k.a. Kate the Chemist. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Kate the Chemist or on Twitter at K.A. The Chemist. This episode was produced by me, Byron Love, and Suzanne Hogan with mixing help from Paris Norvell. Mackenzie Martin is our editor. Gabe Rosenberg is our digital editor. And special thanks to Jean-Viev Desmarteaux and the Sowers Institute. Our original theme music is by The Coma Calling, and you heard music from OMD and Blue Dot Sessions and clips from Back to the Future, Stranger Things, Into the Forest, Family Feud, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and A is for Adam. Next time, we're looking at flooding. We go to the coast and hear from a lifelong Louisianan that's using science to save his community from a world of water. This is not like a shopping center-sized problem. This, this is like hundreds of miles of coast. Until then, if you want to see a behind-the-scenes video of my new favorite nuclear fusion experiment, check out our Instagram stories at Seeking a Scientist or Twitter, Seeking a SciPod. You can also subscribe to our email list at seekingascientist.org. Seeking a Scientist is made possible with support from the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, where scientists work to accelerate our understanding of human health and disease. More information about the Stowers Institute is online at stowersinstitute.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.